March 28, 2021. Week 13. 100 Day Challenge. The Backstory. Nehemiah. Twain's, in Mark Twain's famous book, Tom Sawyer, probably, be, probably my favorite scene in that whole book is one Saturday in the summertime when Tom is punished by his aunt for some mischievous deed he's done. He's always doing some kind of mischievous deed. And his punishment is he has to paint a fence white. And he gets that punishment and says, oh, come on, auntie, do I have to paint a fence? What, like, on a nice Saturday in the summertime, I have to spend my Saturday painting a fence? And there's no getting out of it. And so Tom goes out, he gets the supplies, he goes out by the, the fence, and he's just trying to get this job done right, get it done the first time, and get it done as fast as possible so he can get on and redeem some of his time on this Saturday. He's uh, kind of dragging his feet through the thing, not, not too enthusiastic about it, but he wants to get it done. He knows there's no getting out of it. And so he's painting on a Saturday, in the summertime as a punishment for something he's done. And out of the corner of his eye while he's painting, he sees neighborhood kid named Ben come walking up and he thinks, oh, not Ben. He knows exactly what Ben's gonna do. Ben's gonna come up and bust his chops and try to distract him, try to distract him from the job or try to get him to mess up or to stop doing what he's doing, just to harass him in general. And he's just trying to block out, like hoping maybe Ben won't notice him or maybe if Ben would just keep moving by. And so he's painting the fence and Ben walks up and starts harassing him. Hey, Tom, what are you doing? What do you think I'm doing? I'm painting the fence. And so he's just painting away and Ben's trying to harass him and distract him and and Tom's just laser focused on this fence. He's just painting the fence because he wants to be done and get on with this day and have some of his Saturday left. And Ben just keeps harassing him, trying to distract him. And and eventually Ben says, come on, you're not trying to make me think that you actually enjoy this, do you? And then Tom stops what he's doing and looks up and says, are you kidding me? I can't remember the last time I got to paint a fence. This is a great treat for a kid. Well, how often does a kid get to paint a fence in the summertime on a Saturday? This is a great treat. I'm really enjoying this. And he goes back to painting. And Ben's like, ah, forget it. You're, you're not enjoying this. Give me a break. And so he, Tom's back to painting. And Ben's just standing there talking to him, harassing him. And then eventually Ben says, I mean, could I have a turn? Could I, could I give it a shot? Would you mind if I just, like, just not long. Just give, me a couple, just give me the brush. I'll just try it for a little while. I won't take it for long, but could I, could I try? And Tom says, haven't I told you? This is a real treat. You'd have to give me something really great for me to exchange the privilege of painting this fence for a few minutes. And Ben says, well, I got this. I'll give you my apple. I'll give you my apple just, just for a few minutes of painting the fence. And Tom says, right, if, if it'll get you off my back, here you go. He takes the apple, hands over the paintbrush. And Tom's got this shiny apple, he cleans it off, and now he's eating an apple while Ben is painting his fence for him that he has to do as a punishment. And life is good for Tom Sawyer. About the time Ben gets tired, another neighborhood kid comes along who is lured by the attraction of painting a fence on a Saturday in the summertime, and he exchanges something, he gives something to Tom in exchange for the privilege of painting this fence on a Saturday. And then another kid comes along, and he gives something to Tom for the privilege of painting this fence. And by mid-afternoon, Mark Twain says that Tom Sawyer was literally rolling in wealth, and he had been traded, been traded a long list of items, including... An apple, 12 marbles, a fragment of chalk, a tin soldier, a couple of tadpoles, six firecrackers, a dog collar but no dog, the handle of a knife, four pieces of orange peel, a kitten with only one eye, and a key that didn't unlock anything. Literally rolling in wealth, Tom Sawyer was. All for the gift of not having to do the punishment that he was sent out to do on this Saturday in the summertime. And of course the comedy there is that Tom is able to trick people out of their wealth in order to do the work that he doesn't want to do. Work is a big part of our lives. The, the works that we do for our jobs, the vocations that we have, the things that you do on Monday mornings when you, when you get up and go to work, 
or the chores that you have to do around the house, the cleaning, the vacuuming, the, the mowing of the lawn, in theory, that time will come to us again. The work is a big part of our lives. And if you enjoy your work, it will add great meaning and value to your life. And it'll give great joy to you. And if you don't like your work, it will drain you dry. So right now, before we even get started, I want you to take, it, take stock for a moment of how, how your stomach reacted to me talking about work. How did your, how did your body react to, to me talking about work? Did you kind of get excited because you love what you do? You got a big project. You can't wait for Monday morning so you can get on with work. Or was there a pit in your stomach like, shut up, bring the band back out again, get this guy to stop talking so we can sing again. This is going in a bad direction. How did your body and your spirit respond to this? Well, we are in the last week of the 100-day challenge. We've been going through a survey of the Old Testament. We did this last year with the New Testament. We did this this year with kind of an overview of the Old Testament. And this is the last week of the 100-day challenge. And we're ending with the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book about work. When you think about the book of Nehemiah, this is a, this is a book about people tackling a big project, and rolling up their sleeves, getting to work. And we see Nehemiah getting to work here in this book early on. And we're introduced to this character of Nehemiah in the very first verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, and if you want to turn to that in, in, in your Bible or on a screen, you can take a moment and turn there while I pray for us. And by the way, my name is Steve Dunmire, teaching pastor here. And so glad you're here with us today, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. You've been so good to us. And as we open up your word, you, you've been teaching us things over the last hundred days and and, and revealing things to us is through this study, through this reading plan together. And we pray you do that again today. Be at work here today, we pray. In the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So here's how we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is one of these believers who has been forced into exile, forced to leave his homeland, forced to, to leave his home and go off to live in a foreign country against his will. And undergirding his life is this hope of returning back home at some point. Under, at, at the base of everything that he's done, everything he's gone through, at, at night when he lies in bed and thinking about what might be, he thinks about going back home to Jerusalem. And in this moment, he's, he's getting this report from his brother and from some other people who've been able to go back to Jerusalem. He's, he's asking, how are things back home? How are things back there? And it's a devastating report. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. Home is a mess. And that sets things in motion for what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. And, and to give you some context of what we're seeing in the book of Nehemiah, let me share three things that kind of give you some context. And the first is, is that this is a time of a new beginning. Nehemiah is a time of, of anticipation. In fact, you may be wondering why we're ending this 100-day challenge with Nehemiah and not the book of Malachi. If we were doing a cover-to-cover -cover reading of, of the Bible, we'd start with of the Old Testament, we'd start with Genesis and we'd end with Malachi. And the last reading in the reading plan this week will be out of Malachi. 
but the book of Ezra and Nehemiah at one point were, were one book and at one point in time they were split up into two separate books. So they're really part one and part two. And the prophet Malachi was a prophet who existed at that same time, who wrote and prophesied at that same time. So essentially Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi are things that are happening at the very same time. And in the timeline of the Old Testament, we see them happening essentially in the last moments of the Old Testament era. We've been using this squiggly line as a way of depicting what's happening in the Old Testament. Let's look at it one last time. We see we begin at the creation, and then there's the fall, and then there's the up of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's covenant with them, and the slavery in Egypt, and then Moses comes, and there's, he leads them out of slavery in Egypt, and there's the time of the judges, the spiral, and, and David, and the divided kingdom. And you notice that the, end, the, the line ends with this up, uptick, this upswing, and this is the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. There's a sense that something new is happening. There's an anticipation that there's a new beginning in the air. Uh, there's an, a sense of anticipation that, that something new is happening. We're going to get to go back to Jerusalem. And so that's what we're seeing in the book of Nehemiah. That's what we see in Ezra. And that's what we're hearing in the prophet Malachi too. But before we get to the fresh start, the second thing here is that their home is in shambles. This place that they're longing to return to is in absolute disrepair. When I was a kid, my dad used to take my brother and I to games at the Odd, the Buffalo Memorial Auditorium, where the original home of the Buffalo Sabres. And I used to love going to games at the Odd and eating nachos and other junk food at the Odd and watching Andrew and Felino and Barrasso and LaFontaine and McGilney and so many all-time greats from the Sabres play in the Odd. And in fact, in April of 1996, I got a ticket with a friend to go to the very last game at the Odd. I still have the program from the last game at the Odd. And uh, the next year, the team moved into the new arena. And, but yet the Odd sat vacant for 13 years. The, the odds sat there from 96 until 2009 when it was finally taken down. And in the, in the months and in the year before the odd was finally knocked down, some photographers and videographers went into the odd. And the, some of the images that came out of there, for, for somebody like me who had grown up going to games there with my dad, immediately there was just this wave of nostalgia. And it looked like, just like I remembered it and only aged. It looked just like I remembered, only in terrible shape. You could tell that it was like they had just kind of shut the door and walked away and forgotten about it. So everything was just as it was, but you could tell the vandals had been inside. There's a lot of graffiti throughout there, and the elements had had their way with the odd. It was not in any good shape anymore. And that's sort of the report that Nehemiah is getting here, except that this is not some old arena that he doesn't need anymore that's going to be demolished next year. This is his ultimate hope of getting back home to this place and the walls are broken down, the gates are burned. This is like finding out that your childhood home, the front door has been kicked in. And so Nehemiah is living in this tension of this new beginning and the fact that his home is in shambles. And so this leads, leads us to the third thing that Nehemiah wants to get to work. He has no doubt about this. He doesn't waver at all. Let me at it. Let me go. I want to get back there. Let me, let me rebuild those walls. Let me rebuild the gates. I want to get back there and get to work. He's not, nobody has to tell him to do it. Nobody has to motivate him. He's intrinsically motivated to dive into this task. And we see him do this in Nehemiah chapter two, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with, with me except the one I was riding on. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's do it. Let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he, he rallies the troops. He just kind of takes stock of the situation and everyone agrees, it's time. We got to do this. We got to rebuild the wall. We have to do it. When can we start? 
And for those of us who love projects, who love to roll up our sleeves and dive into a project, for people who like bricks and mortars and like building stuff, Nehemiah is a hero. I have friends who just love Nehemiah because he's their kind of Christian. Like, give me a project, give me something to build, give me something to work on. You know, I can't even put together something from Ikea. But I've got friends who can do these sorts of things, apparently. And so people like that love, love Nehemiah. And often when a church builds a building or launches out into a new ministry, we, we go to Nehemiah as an example of what it looks like to take on a big project, to, to get our hands dirty, to roll our sleeves up and dive in. And God's plan for us, God has made you to work. God's plan for your work is to make you say, I was made for this. Something we're seeing here in Nehemiah is a theology of work. And part of God's plan for you is for you to have work that you can do every day and every week of your life that makes you say, oh, I was made for this. You know, that you go to your work and you solve a problem or you fix something and you're involved in some project and at the end of it, you say, man, I do that for free if they let me. I, I just love that. I feel alive when I'm doing this. I feel invigorated when I'm involved in this task. Or you fix something, you can say, man, I, this is, I, I feel like I'm in my element. Or you have little kids at home and they keep you up at night and you have toddlers or infants. They don't let you sleep. They steal your, your, all your stuff. They flush stuff down the toilet. They spit up all over you. And yet when they're sleeping in their cribs at night, you look at them and say, man, I was made for this. This is a gift. God's plan for your work is that you would say, I was made for this, that you'd feel this intrinsic reward from it, the way Nehemiah was just motivated by himself to do this work. And yet, tragically, a lot of us have work that makes us say, oh, I hate this, how much longer? A study in 2020 found that uh, 50% of American workers are disengaged at work, which is a way of saying, you know, you're, you leave as soon as you can. You take a little bit longer lunch break. You do things on the clock that maybe you shouldn't do. You're not really engaged. You're not self-motivated. You're not doing above and beyond what you need to do. You do what needs to get done. You do what you need to get a paycheck, and then you're out of there. Whereas engaged employees maybe get there a little bit early. They stay a little bit late. It's not necessarily even about staying early or, or getting there early or staying late, but you're motivated. You don't need to be, be ridden to get stuff done. You're just motivated to do what you do. And 31% of employees, that same study found, quit their job, not because of their job, but they quit their job because of their boss. And other studies have found that job satisfaction is linked to life expectancy, that if you love what you do, if, you're, if you find that your work is rewarding, it, it pays off in your life expectancy. You're likely to live longer. And likewise, the converse of that is that if you don't like what you do, that has a detrimental effect on your life expectancy. In fact, that's why people become workaholics. Not because we don't like what we do, but because we love what we do. Because it's intrinsically rewarding. We're, we're motivated to do it. We see the difference we're making. You go to work and you can tell that you're making a difference. You get the reward financially or through feedback that you receive. And so you're just motivated to do the work. And that's why we become workaholics. People who are workaholics aren't masochists. They actually love what they do. In fact, the, the term workaholic was invented in a study on pastors first time I heard that, I thought, that can't be right. And then the more I thought about it, I said, actually, that makes a lot of sense because what we do is so important and so rewarding and pastoral burnout is a really big deal and it's, an, it's, it's rampant throughout the church. But it's easy to get addicted to this work because it makes such a difference because when, when, you know, when you're doing something like this, preaching the gospel, what could be more important? What could be more satisfying? For some of us, I've been talking about work and your J-O-B, but for a lot of us, our most meaningful work does not come with a paycheck. Some of the most meaningful work I've ever done in my life has not been tied to a paycheck. And so for some of us, you may be like, well, I've got a job, but that's not my most meaningful work. Let me tell you about my most meaningful work. Yeah, I go to that job and that's where I get my paycheck. But that really funds my soccer habit. 
You know, I love coaching soccer or, or, you know, when I really come alive, it's when I'm leading AA meetings and I'm sponsoring people and seeing people get a handle on, on their recovery and sobriety, leading people through the steps. Man, that's, I have my job, but that's my work. Or it's volunteering here. I've seen a lot of people in our church and other churches who, after they've retired, have the most meaningful and satisfying work they've ever had in their lives by volunteering at the church or getting involved in missions or other projects when they don't have to work for a paycheck and they can just serve and the satisfaction, they don't have to set the alarm clock in the morning. They just go. And for students, that might be, you know, your day job is being a student and going to class, but your work where you really come alive is in the team that you're on or the, the production that you're a part of or something that you're doing after school hours that really, that's what you think about at night. That's what you're always, your mind is going to. That's the work that, that really invigorates you. Some of the most meaningful work we do in our lives, it doesn't have to necessarily be tied to a paycheck, but God's plan for your work is to make you say, I was made for this. I was made for this. And we're seeing that in Nehemiah. He's got this work. He knows it, it, it's, it rises up from this deep place within him. Yet there's a surprise waiting for us in Nehemiah. Matthew Sleeth, an MD, a medical doctor, uh, he said that when we think of Nehemiah, we think about a, a book about work, about getting stuff done. But the work only takes the first four chapters. There's nine more chapters after the work is done. What's going on in those last nine chapters? And he says, once the people finish their work, they moved on. What do they move on to do? Look at verse thir- uh, chapter 13. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath is over. I stationed some of my men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all good, kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night, uh, night by the wall? If you do this again, I'm going to arrest you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates, of the, uh, guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. One of the amazing surprises waiting for us in Nehemiah is it's not just about work. Yes, there's a lot of work that's done. And yes, the first four chapters are focused on getting this work done. But once the work is done, as Matthew Sleese says, yes, work is good, but the purpose of work is not more work. And once the work is done, they don't launch into another project. Now what's the next project? What are we going to build now? What are we going to fix now? The work is done. Now we rest. And after they've gone through this time of rebuilding, Nehemiah shifts his focus to restoring the rhythms of Sabbath and rest. Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, of course, probably one of the most misunderstood and confusing uh, of the Ten Commandments for our day and age. But what is Sabbath? Sabbath is a day to rest. My favorite definition of Sabbath is just three words. Rest, play, and prayer. And one of the, the problems that we've had in our day and age with, with Sabbath is that we've forgotten the play part. A lot, of, a lot of religious folks have enforced Sabbath, but they've pulled out the play part. When Sabbath is a gift, Sabbath is a day to rest and to play and to pray. My favorite way of thinking about Sabbath really is to think of it as a snow day. Snow day when you're a kid is a gift. You know, you've got these, these projects and assignments, you've got to go to school and all of a sudden, poof, a vacation in the middle of your week. It's just a wonderful gift. I, I've mentioned before, I grew up in North Tonawanda and up in the North Towns, we don't get nearly as much snow as we get down here in the South Towns. And as a kid, I'd often hear about lake effect snow bands coming through and I just watched the South Towns getting pummeled and I look outside and it's blue, blue skies out in North Tonawanda and I'd be jealous of everybody down here in the South Towns. And every once in a while we'd get a snow day or there'd be reports of snow days coming across Western New York and I'd watch the, the school closings across, going across the bottom of the screen on two, four, and seven. 
and I'd see Eden. Okay, okay, here we go. Eden, Frontier. Okay, Hamburg, Lakeshore, North Collins, and I'd be sitting there in my adolescent self saying, say North Tonawana, 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 say North Tonawana. Orchard Park. Nothing tested my patience as an adolescent kid like Orchard Park on snow days. Are you kidding me? But a snow day in the middle of your school week is just this gift. No obligations, no homework. That homework you forgot to do, you got an extra day to do it. No test, that test is delayed. Everybody, nobody don't have to go anywhere. You can go back to bed, you can stay in your pajamas, you can watch a movie, read a book, play video games, whatever you want to do. It's a gift day. You can't go anywhere. You got to stay home. Enjoy it. It's a gift. And Sabbath is intended as a snow day. Once a week. This gift of a day, like poof, no obligations. You don't have to do anything. Relax, have fun, rest, play, and pray. And it's this gift dropping in the middle of the week. Jews observe the Sabbath on Saturday. Christians have historically observed this day of rest on Sundays after the resurrection of Christ began worshiping on Sundays. And I'm not really that interested in debating which day it should be. Just do you have that rhythm of one day a week where there's a snow day that plops in the middle of your week and you don't have to do anything. God's plan for your work is to make you say, I was made for this. But get this, God's plan for rest is to make you remember, I was made for more than this. God's plan for your work is to give you meaning and purpose and to help you have sense, a sense that you're making a difference in your world and in the world. But God puts rest in our life to help us remember we were made for more than work. We were not made to be workaholics. We were not made to be machines that just work, work and work and work until we wear ourselves out. God gives us rest to remind us we were more, made for more than this. The antidote for those of us who love what you do and you're, you find yourself tipping towards the scale of workaholism, the antidote for, you, antidote for you is rest. The antidote for those of you who hate your job and you wish I would stop talking about work, the antidote for you is for rest. We, and we see Nehemiah here enforcing the Sabbath, and he seems a little bit harsh, doesn't he? He's kicking out the money changers, and he's kicking out those who are merchants and telling them to go away. He says, I'm going to arrest you if you come back again. He's got the Levites guarding the gates. It seems really harsh and heavy-handed. This seems like the kind of legalism we, we, we kind of chafe against, that he's so harsh about this, and he's, he's setting up the walls to prevent anybody from breaking the Sabbath. That this, is more, this isn't like legalism. This is like dealing with a toddler. You know, when you've got a toddler and it's nap time, you say, come on, honey, it's time for nap time. And they say, but I'm not tired. I know you're not tired, but daddy's tired. That's why you need to take a nap. Let's put you down over here. And if you wait with a toddler until they're tired, it's too late. They're Godzilla. The whole community's at risk now. You, if you wait to put them to bed until they're tired, good luck. Save yourself. Lock your doors. Hide your, hide your cats and dogs. Because it's just too late. You have to put them to bed before they know that they're tired. Because if you wait until they're tired, it's too late. And Nehemiah here is saying, I know how this works. I know what the pattern of history is. If you wait until you're tired to take time off, it's too late you're fried. And so often the gift of Sabbath has been forfeited, has been given away. No, 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 it's fine. I like doing this. This is one, just one more day. I feel fine. I'm just a little bit tired. Just, I'll take a little snooze tonight, get three or four hours of sleep tonight, and I'll be fine tomorrow. But no, so often we have forfeited the gift of Sabbath. And Nehemiah says, like a toddler, nope, it's nap time. You may not want to do it, but you need to do it. And so often those who have observed the Sabbath, those who have been forced to put, go in nap time, I said, oh, I didn't realize how much I needed that. I didn't realize how much I needed that until, until it was given to me. God's plan for your work is to make you say, I was made for this. God's plan for rest is to help you remember you were made for more than just work.
So how does the story end? Well, Nehemiah builds the wall and they rebuild the gates and Jerusalem is fortified and it's safe again. Those walls really represent security and safety, keeping anybody from the outside from just coming in. But really, the story of Nehemiah ends about 400 years later. About 400 years later, a savior would come and he would ride on a donkey, a symbol of peace, through the very gates that Nehemiah had rebuilt. I wonder if Nehemiah had any inkling. Through the walls that Nehemiah had rebuilt, through the gates that he had rebuilt, along comes Christ, riding on a donkey, and the place went nuts. They threw their coats on the ground. They threw palm branches on the ground. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was this sense that those culminations, all those hopes and the dreams and the sense that a new beginning was here, a new beginning was dawning that came to its full culmination when Jesus of Nazareth came riding into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry that kicked off Holy Week. And all these years later, we're commemorating Palm Sunday today. We call that Palm Sunday and today's the day when we remember that. And how fitting that we talk about Nehemiah who rebuilt that wall that Jesus came walking through. And that kicked off the most important week in the history of the world. And we know something that happened every single day that week. We know that on Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowd shouted, shouted Hosanna. We know that on Monday, Jesus overturned the tables at the temple and no one really knew quite what to make of that. And on Tuesday, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and taught in parables and the crowd was mesmerized and amazed and didn't quite know how to take that in either. And on Wednesday, Judas agreed to betray Jesus and the priest told told him that they would give him 30 silver coins in exchange for his betrayal. On Thursday, Jesus shared the last supper with his, with his disciples. And on Friday, Jesus was crucified and laid in the tomb and Pilate washed his hands of the whole thing. But on Sunday, we know what happened on Sunday. Jesus rose again. The stone was rolled away. He defeated death and conquered the grave. And Jesus rose again and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. But what about Saturday? What happened on Saturday? The Bible is eerily silent about what was happening on Saturday. We know every single day that week. On Saturday, they rested. The disciples who just had all their hopes dashed and everything ripped away, cooled it for a day. Jesus, God rested. Is it just a coincidence that the first witnesses to the resurrection had just spent the day resting? Is it just a coincidence that the first people to go and find the empty tomb had just spent the day observing the Sabbath? Or could it be that Sabbath rest is the perfect preparation for resurrection wonder? When God created the heavens and the earth, he created all of it in six days. The earth, the ground, the sky, he created everything that swims in the sea, everything that crawls along the surface of the ground, everything that flies in the air, he did it all in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. When Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem for that new beginning, he got the work done. They rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt the gates. They did everything they needed to do. And then he said, okay, time for nap time. Take a rest. Cool it. We're going to Sabbath. And when Jesus was sent by the Father to bring salvation to all of humanity, he did the work that God had sent him to do. He had done the work of the Father. He laid down his life. He spread his arms out on the cross. He laid down his life. He died. They laid him in the grave and everybody rested. And then resurrection came. If you need a new beginning, if you need a new start, if you need a new chapter in your life, take it from Nehemiah, take it from the disciples, take it from God, the creator of heaven and earth. The best preparation is Sabbath rest.
God's plan for you is to have work that makes you say, I was made for this. God's plan for rest is to make you remember, I was made for more than this. I hope that you have work that you can't wait to get to tomorrow. I hope that you have work that makes you say, I was made for this. I hope that you have days when you look up at the clock and can't believe how much time has passed by because you're so engrossed in your work, but don't rush past Sunday. When we rest, very often, resurrection is waiting on the other side. Last spring, not long after stay-at-home orders started and our kids shifted to online remote education and teachers weren't allowed to go to school and we were all adjusting to what reality was going to be like for a while, uh, there was a report of flurries the next day in the forecast and we got one of those robocalls from our school district and the superintendent was notifying everybody that there were flurries in the forecast for the next day and uh, he had decided to use a snow day for the next day. And it was going to be an unexpected snow day. And he said, teachers are not to report. No Google Meets, no classroom, no homework is due. Everybody enjoy a snow day. And it was, you know, kind of got a giggle throughout the school district. Like, this is kind of silly. Like, A, there's not going to be that much snow. B, nobody has to go anywhere anyway to do the school stuff. So why, why do we need a snow day? But by the end of the snow day, the collective sigh throughout the district was, oh, we needed that. We didn't realize how much we needed that. And often those who receive the gift of Sabbath will say, oh, I didn't realize how much I needed that until I got it. So this week, as we prepare for the resurrection of Christ, to, to, to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday, perhaps the best preparation is to rest. So what should you do? Take a nap. Eat off paper plates. Let the dishes pile up in the sink. Eat cereal for dinner. Go for a walk. Go watch a sunset. Play a game. Do anything unproductive. In our household, we found that Sabbath is often most rewarding when anything that's productive is off limits. Take your phone, throw it in a drawer, throw it in the oven, throw it outside, throw it in the garbage can. Just unplug for the day. Rest, play, and pray. And you'll see how often resurrection is waiting on the other side. In that book, Tom Sawyer Mark Twain says that after Tom had tricked all of his friends into painting the fence for him, that probably the most poignant line from the whole book, uh, uh, Mark Twain says that Tom had learned, if he was smarter, he would have learned a very valuable lesson, which is this. Work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do, and play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. Work is the things you have to do. Play is the things you don't have to do. And my friends, that's Sabbath. You got six days to labor. The seventh is the Lord's. Rest, play, and pray. Receive that as a gift. Therefore, by the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel, I declare today a snow day. For everyone in Eden and Frontier and Hamburg and Lakeshore and North Collins and Orchard Park in North Tonawanda, Springville, wherever you may be, it's a snow day. There's no snow in the forecast. Only rest, play, and prayer. And guess what? You've already prayed. So rest and play. Resurrection is waiting on the other side. God, we thank you for this day and this gift. Help us to receive it. Help us to not give away the gift of rest. To receive it with gladness. May your spirit do something special today as we rest in you. For those who have work that is draining, may they find solace today and rest. For those who have work that is 
deeply enriching, deeply encouraging, deeply meaningful. May they have the strength to untether themselves from it for a day. God, as we prepare our hearts for this holy week, remembering your sacrifice, remembering the blood that was shed for us, remembering the incredible price that was paid, marveling at the incredible power that was revealed when the empty tomb was revealed and your angels declared that you were risen, you were not there. Oh God, help us to rest and experience resurrection wonder again and receive the new beginning you have for us. We pray this all in the matchless name of Christ our Lord.